0: Younger, you may go to your children's service downstairs. I'd like to invite the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter seven. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, verses. 18 to 23, John chapter 7, verses 18 to 23. Would you pray with me for a moment before we begin, please? Father, we come into your presence this morning as we open your word. We ask you to speak to our hearts. I pray, Father, for ears to hear and for hearts to to believe. I pray for your strength and your grace and your anointing in the teaching and proclamation of your word this morning. Lord, without you, we can do nothing. We rest completely in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Several weeks ago, as we were looking at Luke chapter 7, the first 17 verses of this chapter contain two very important accounts of events in the life of Christ. One of those is the healing of the centurion's servant. You recall that the centurion had a very much loved and appreciated servant who had grown seriously ill, and he sent this message to Jesus, and Jesus began to journey toward his house. And you recall how being very keenly sensitive of the social implications of all that that would mean, he interrupted him, he intercepted him, and he said, you don't need to come to my house. All you have to do is say the word, and if you say the word, uh, I understand authority. My servant will be healed. I know that you have authority to do that. Jesus marvelled and said I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of the nation of Israel. This is amazing. And then the second event that Luke records for us in this early chapter, early part of the chapter is Jesus and his disciples are kind of on a uh, kind of a tour and they're approaching the city of Nain and as they're coming to this village this town, uh, they encounter a funeral procession leaving the city and uh, as the facts unfold, the young man on the uh, stretcher that's being carried out for burial is the only son of a widowed woman. And Jesus takes great compassion upon her and he stops the funeral procession and puts his hand on the body of this young man and tells him to rise up. And he comes up from the grave and uh, from, the, from the dead And Jesus gives him back to his mother. And these two dramatic events are, uh, to date, some of his greatest miracles. And Luke gives us this background, setting the stage for what develops in verse 18. Now, I want you to dial back in your memory. You don't have to turn back in your Bible, but kind of go back in your memory to Luke chapter 3, where after um, Luke kind of condenses... The baptism of Jesus with the arrest of John the Baptist. And what we know is that at this point in time, John the Baptist is in jail. He has been imprisoned by Herod the Tetrarch because, uh, well, frankly, he has challenged Herod's lifestyle. And uh, Herod doesn't appreciate that. And he wants to take him out of circulation. So he has uh, incarcerated him in the prison. And John has been kind of uh, use the word languishing there for quite some time uh he has uh been taken out of the mainstream he doesn't have any freedom he's not seeing with his own eyes what's going on around uh the the community and around the nation of israel as jesus has been uh Completing and performing his ministry and so he's kind of been isolated from all of this except by way of reports And as time has gone along uh, I think John has become a little bit disillusioned If you'll look at verse 18 with me in your Bibles, I want to read those verses that pertain to this event Where it says the disciples of John reported to him about all these things that is they told John the Baptist about all that jesus was doing (coughs) summoning two of his disciples john sent them to the lord saying are you the expected one or do we look for someone else when the men came to him they said john the baptist has sent us to you to ask are you the expected one or do we look for someone else While they were there at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. He gave sight to many who were blind. He answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Let's go back to the beginning of John's ministry. In fact, let's go back a little further than that. Luke's gospel in the first and second chapters gives us a strong background for both the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. We know that uh, John was somewhat related to Jesus. They were sort of cousins by marriage. And um, uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth were in their advanced years when um, the angel met Zacharias and told him that they were going to have a child. And he was going to be a special child. He was going to be a forerunner for the Messiah as we are introduced to John as he comes on the scene, we find him at the Jordan River outside of Jerusalem, not very far from Jerusalem, preaching a baptism of repentance and calling the entire nation to examine and to mend its ways. And he is one of these fiery evangelists. He is challenging uh, all kinds of people, great and small, Uh, Men and women, whatever their status in life, he is challenging them that they get right with God, that they turn from their sinful ways. And what we find is that John is actually heralding a kind of a revival fire that is purifying and cleansing the nation. But at the same time, he is announcing the reality that he is not the coming Messiah, the whole nation was kind of ripe and hopeful for the appearance of messiah and he says i'm not the one but there's one coming after me he's mightier than i am i'm not worthy to untie the very laces of his sandals Uh, he is the one who baptizes with fire and with the holy spirit and he is the one um, who is the lamb of god that takes away the sin of the world This is his message to to those who are listening. Well, one day uh, we read that Jesus appears at the Jordan River to be baptized of John. And when he comes, you know how that story goes. Jesus comes down into the water and John is kind of startled by his presence there. And he looks at him and he recognizes uh, the, the holiness and the purity that is upon this man, Jesus Christ. And he says, I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. I, I am not worthy to baptize you. And yet Jesus says, no, I want you to baptize me. Just parenthetically, we can look at that and see that Jesus is already making his identification with us. He really does not need to be baptized in repentance for sin. But he is already beginning to take his identification with us in our need. And so he says to John, no, you need to baptize me. And you know how when he was baptized, he came up out of the water. The scripture says that the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descended on him out of heaven. And a voice uh, sounded and shouted, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased all of this excitement surrounded um, that period of John's ministry as he was kind of like on the, the crest of this wave of revival transformation. And then came the day when Herod put him in jail, took him out of circulation, and Jesus' ministry began to rise. Some of John's disciples came to him and said, John! Have you heard what's happening um, with Jesus? Uh, all kind of people are being baptized with him, and, and uh, he's gaining in popularity, and they were kind of worried that you know, their mentor was losing um, kind of the position, and John very clearly said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Well, that was then, but time has gone along. Jesus has not exactly turned out to be the political Messiah that even John was anticipating. There's no evidence that he is going to free the nation of Israel from Roman oppression. Uh, There's no evidence that he's going to lead them out in great triumph and restore Israel to its glory. Uh, There was a great tendency in the time of Christ to confuse the prophecies and kind of get the lines blurred. The, the idea of the last things were uh, kind of overlapping. And John was hoping, I think, that Jesus would be the one that would cause Israel to be once again restored to its former glory. And that was not what was occurring. In fact, the rumors were already flying that the Pharisees were upset with him and uh, that Things were not going as well as John had hoped. And as he sat there in prison, watching and hearing the reports of this one that he had assumed would rise to prominent power as the deliverer, he began to get disillusioned. You can put yourself in his shoes, can't you? You know, when everything's going well for us and we're riding the crest of the wave, it's kind of easy to think, wow, this is, this is just never going to end. This is fantastic. But when all of a sudden we're set aside and we end up in a backwater somewhere and uh, our lives turn kind of sour and things aren't coming out the way we had hoped and we begin to examine and say, what was this all about? Was this worth it? What's happening to me? Who is this guy? And I think John was becoming somewhat disappointed. And so he sends these two disciples to Jesus with a very perceptive question. Are you the one? Or should we be looking for someone else? I titled my message this morning, Disappointed with Jesus? Are we disappointed with Jesus? What are the risks that we will come to a place in our life, or perhaps you already have, where Jesus is not living up to your expectations? And you find that disappointment is growing. It's not turning out the way that you thought it would. You know, there are things that sometimes set us up for that. You've probably all heard evangelists who are sort of guilty of false advertising. They offer things when they invite people to come to Christ that the Gospels actually never offer. Uh, They make promises that Jesus never made. And consequently, they set people up for failure because they lead them to believe that if they become a follower of Christ, certain things are going to happen that are going to make their life better. And in fact, they don't turn out that way. But sometimes we don't even need evangelists with false messages to put us on a wrong path. Sometimes we come with our own agendas. We have expectations already built in that that we think Jesus is going to satisfy. And we make that decision to come to him and to follow him in hopes that he will do the thing for which we long. Many of you have heard the term foxhole religion. You know how that works. The person's uh, in war, they're under fire, they're in the foxhole, the mortars are landing all around them. And they pray something like this, God, if you just get me out of this mess, I'll serve you with my life. And uh, they're spared. Sometimes they make good on that promise. Sometimes they don't make good on it. Sometimes they don't get spared. The next mortar lands in their foxhole. But that's the kind of mentality that says, I'm in a jam, and if I could just get rescued, uh, well, I'll serve the Lord. I want to bring to our attention this morning some of the kinds of things that people believe that set them up for failure. Because, and this is important, if you are following Jesus with a false hope or a false expectation, the day will come when you are disappointed. And when you become disappointed and disillusioned, there is a strong possibility that your faith will be shipwrecked, and that you will find yourself bittered and uh, turning away from Christ and on the outside looking in, feeling that this religion thing was not all that it was cracked up to be, and somehow it's let you down. One of the false hopes that many people have is the desire to escape the social consequence of sin. Uh, You know, people come to Christ for forgiveness, and that's a very good reason, by the way. That is our primary need. We need to be cleansed from sin. We need to be forgiven. We need to be made right with God. But oftentimes, in the back of our minds, we're hoping that if we just come to God and say, I'm sorry, and we get him to, to forgive us, that he will also fix the problem. Uh, if, it's, if it's a marital problem, if it's a family problem, if it's you're really messed up at work and you're, you're about to get fired and you know, you have these kinds of issues facing you, and you think, oh, wow, I've really messed up. If I come to God and and tell him I'm sorry, he's going to fix all this stuff for me. The reality of the case is that none of that may get fixed. In fact, one of the tests of genuine repentance is when a person is so sufficiently broken that they don't care what the consequences are. But they go with brokenness and a contrite heart and spirit and simply seek to to ask forgiveness and and have some relationship mended, even if they have to pay a price. But a lot of times people come to Jesus hoping that he's going to bail them out of hot water. Some people come to Christ hoping that he is going to restore broken human relationships. Well, my marriage is a mess. I've really fouled up with my kids. The relationships of my life are falling apart. If I come to Jesus, he's going to make everything better. Did you read the Gospels? Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to divide between husband and wife, father and mother and brother and sister. I came to bring division in the family. Now, he doesn't mean that kind of in your face like this is the inevitable. But what he's saying is, if you love your father, your mother, your husband, your wife, your brother, your sister more than you love me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. I have to be first and foremost in your life. I have to be the unquestioned number one. You have to be completely sold out to me regardless of the consequence. And the truth of the matter is, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, your spouse may hate you even more. Your children may turn away from you with greater disgust. Your friends may abandon you in mass. All of a sudden, you have different appetites and different interests. You don't want to go out with them and party all night. You have a different set of goals. You want to clean up your house. You want to straighten out the the things that you watch and the kinds of ways you recreate. And, and you want to uh, begin to, to attend worship services and read your Bible and Come to prayer meetings and get involved in the fellowship of the saints. And your life begins to take on a whole new complexion. And Jesus says this is going to cause division. People are not going to want to go with this. Even within your own family. So that Paul finally says to the church at Corinth, if you have an unbelieving spouse and they will not come around and they want to leave, let them go. You follow Jesus Christ, no matter what the cost. Some people come to Jesus hoping that he's going to fix everything that's broken in their lives, and in fact, he does fix them, but the relationships may even get worse. Jesus said, if the world hates me, don't be surprised if it hates you. You're going to be my follower. You're going to get the same kind of treatment. Oftentimes people come to Jesus hoping for miraculous healing and escape from suffering. We read the gospel records and we see how Jesus healed all the ones that were brought to him. We forget to read a little further into the, into the epistles where Paul says, there came to me this affliction, affliction and I prayed three times that God would take it away. And his answer was finally no. No. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. We look at the circumstances of the three uh, Israelites who refused to bow to the king and found themselves in the fiery furnace. And we love that story because we see there was a fourth person walking around with them and uh, when they were taken out, not even the smell of smoke was on their clothing and they were delivered and we think about their friend Daniel who ended up in the lion's den for his faithfulness to God and how the lions wouldn't even touch him and he was rescued. And, and we read these great stories and we say, wow, that's, that's going to happen to me if I follow Jesus. Nothing will touch me. We forget to read the book of Acts where Stephen is stoned to death for his faith. James is the first disciple to be martyred for being a follower of Jesus Christ. And throughout the history of the church, people have given their lives for their faith. We read the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, and we find a faithful one after faithful one throughout that Old Testament period that paid a great price to follow Jesus. We like to hear the good stories of deliverance and And uh, healing and success and miraculous um, escape from danger. And we fail to read the rest of the story. Sometimes God permits us in his glory to be martyrs for the faith. Sometimes we come to Christ hoping for financial gain and release from the consequence of foolish spending. All of you are familiar with the preachers of the prosperity gospel. You know, if you just give this amount, if you, if you give a tithe, if you send me your money, God's going to make you rich. He's going to give you all the things you ever wanted. You're going to have those uh, $2,000 designer suits, and you're going to live in that fine home. Friends, you know what happens when you give 10% of your income to the Lord you have less money. People often don't think about that. When you give a tithe to the Lord's work, you have less. Now, the reality is, is that God may in fact give you a whole new set of appetites. He may change the longing of your heart. He may give you new wisdom. He may uh, give you a greater sense of discipline and the stewardship of what you do have. You may come to recognize that he not only owns the ten, he owns the hundred. It all belongs to him. And as a follower of Jesus Christ coming under his lordship, uh, he may make you a wise steward of your resources and you may find in the end that you're far better off than you were. But there is no promise That if you come to Jesus and become a faithful follower and give your money, that you're going to get rich in this world's goods. That is a completely false hope. Some of us hope for release of emotional and psychological problems and pain. And I want to pause here and just... Explain something. Jesus does, in fact, offer release from emotional and psychological pain. But read the rest of my statement. Without the deep work of transformation and sanctification. Years ago... In my ministry, I spend an awful lot of time counseling, and I don't want you to take this uh, wrong at all. I'm more than willing to sit down and spend some time with you and talk with you about the struggles that you're facing in your life and pray with you and point you to Jesus. But I found that people would come up and take hour after hour after hour of time And then when it would come down to drilling down into their lives and beginning to point out where they were wrong and they needed to allow the Holy Spirit to begin to bring discipline into their own life and to begin to change them. They didn't want to come back. They didn't want to be changed. They wanted to be coddled. They didn't want to be different. They wanted somebody to agree with them that the whole world was against them. And they came basically for emotional support. They had no desire to be different. Friends, when you follow Jesus Christ with all your heart, you may be surprised that one of his goals is to get you to grow up. To be responsible. To accept your own issues and come before him In in nakedness and say, God, I am undone and I'm a mess and I need you to fix me. I need to be changed. I need you to transform me. I need to be different. I often tell people as they're talking to me and, and they want to bring up the issues of other people in their lives, it's like, you know what? That may be true, but they're not here. And there's not anything we can do about them. But you're here. And the question is, what does God want to do about you? Some people are hoping that Jesus will just kind of magically take away their emotional struggles without taking away their sinful expectations and their self-centered focus. And what He really wants to do is transform their heart to follow Him. In death to self, becoming alive in the Christ, we resist the work of sanctification. So, that leads me to ask the question, (laughs) what good is Jesus if coming to him is not going to make me well, make me rich, make me happy? fill all my life with wonderful friends and good things and solve all my problems and pat me on the back and send me off with with a good attitude. What good is Jesus? The answer to that is in a very different realm. First of all, he frees us from sin's guilt and penalty and power and gives us genuine peace. Do you remember that first night after you had trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you, you went home and you went to bed, how clean you felt? Because there was no guilt. Because Jesus Christ had removed that sense of shame and freed you from sin's penalty. And brought you into peace with God. Peace on two planes. A judicial peace. That brought about a truce. So that God is no longer the judge who will meet you one day on the wrong side of the fence. But he is your father. Your heavenly father and your friend. Who has received you. Through his beloved Jesus Christ. And you are at peace with him. And also you are at peace. Because there is no more guilt and bondage of sin. And he has freed you from its power. So that you are free to be transformed. And to become all that God desires you to be secondly he restores our relationship and intimacy with god we are estranged from god apart from him we are lost we're in bondage to our sin and he has come to us and drawn us near we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry out dear daddy abba father jesus is our elder brother almighty god is our heavenly father We have come into a relationship with Him wherein He has promised never to leave us or forsake us. He gives us His personal, divine, and abiding presence every day and every moment. He said to His disciples, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will always be with you, even to the ends of the age. You will never go anywhere that I am not with you. Do you know how significant and important that is? To know that there's no place on this earth you can go without the abiding presence of Jesus Christ. And He is there to give wisdom and wonderful counsel. He says, when you're facing troubles and difficulties and challenges in life and you ask for wisdom, I will give it to you and I will never chastise you for asking. I will guide you with my eye upon you. Uh, Do not lean on your own understanding, but come to me, acknowledge me, and in every way I will direct your steps. I will give you guidance, and I will give you direction. And then Jesus Christ invites us to join him in significant, meaningful, and eternal work. There's not a person in this room this morning That doesn't long to be significant. I don't mean that in some kind of sick psychological way. I I mean that in the very genuine sense that we want our lives to matter. We want to know that that we're making a difference, that, that we're making a contribution, that we're important for who we are. You know, if we were off the scene, we would be missed. Jesus invites us into his significance to join him in meaningful and eternal work. Some of you think, well, all I do is I just go to work. I have a common, ordinary job. It's not very special. I'm not ever going to be known for what I do. Friends, because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, everywhere you go becomes holy ground. You are the temple of the living God. He abides in you. His light shines out through you. He transforms everything you do. I'm not just talking preacher mumbo-jumbo. I'm speaking reality here. He gives you the privilege of being a light bearer of the message of the gospel wherever you go. You go to work and how you do that work and how you relate to people and what you do day by day. You never know what God the Holy Spirit is doing through you as you devote each day to him and live uh, with a conscious dependence upon his leadership in your life lord my life is yours do with it what you please and you may go for days and for weeks without uh, seeing any impact and then one day someone comes to you and says i've been watching you and there's something about you I i would like to understand or how is it that you managed to be so cheerful in this horribly toxic environment we work in you know how, how do you, how do you manage to have peace in all the pressure we s- live with? How, what's different? And there's an opportunity to explain the hope that is in you. Everything you do becomes sacred when it is touched by the presence of God. He invites us. To join him in significant, eternal work. Jesus promises peace in the midst of trouble. My peace I give you, not the peace the world gives. You're going to have tribulation here, but I'm going to give you my peace. I'm going to give you my joy. I'm going to give you courage in the face of fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. And when we're faced with fearful things, God will give us courage. He gives us joy in tribulation. You realize that's the second fruit of the Holy Spirit. When he is alive and active in our lives, he produces love, joy, peace. That's his nature. He brings it to us. Jesus gives us comfort in the time of sorrow. Hope in the tragedy of loss. Paul writes to the Thessalonians and he says, We sorrow, but not like those who are hopeless. We have hope. We have confidence. And he gives us eternal life in the face of death. He gives us the grace to face our own mortality and know that we're going to live forever in his presence He is our all in all, the great I am, the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Our way, our truth, our life, our resurrection, our great shepherd, our door, our drink, our bread, our sustenance, our support, our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our peace. Without Him we can do nothing. And with Him there's nothing that we cannot do. Whatever He calls us to do is possible with Him. He is our rock and our anchor, our refuge, our strong tower, our defense, the mighty God. Jesus is worth living for, and he's worth dying for. I wonder this morning, have you been following him for the wrong reasons? Have you been hoping for things that he never offered and missing all the marvelous things that he makes readily available. This is the day to strengthen your faith. This is the day to cultivate your walk with him. Now is the time. When, when life storms assail when the foundations are kicked out from under you and the storm waters are rushing at you. That's a bad time to try to bolster faith. You need to know him in that moment. You need to have that confidence. You need to be ready. Now's the time to build and deepen and strengthen that walk with him. So that no matter what comes, you can face it. You know, we talk about the Puritans and we often do so with disdain. We think they had a rather sour, emotionless outlook on life. And that's not exactly true. They were... Far more emotional than we can imagine. They, they had a very healthy view of life. But one of the things they realized is this is not heaven. Heaven is out there in the future. This isn't heaven. But Jesus is with us now. And as we walk with him and come to know him and follow him. We will be prepared for now and for then. Are you following him for the right reason? Father, I ask this morning in the name of Jesus that you draw our hearts to you. That you make clear our motivation. That you give us a right expectation. You are everything to us. But not the way the world gives In a much deeper, richer, eternal way. We want to follow you. And be fortified in our relationship. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.